0: Discovery of organ transplantation was a revolution for the medical procedure canon. For a bit of history, the dream of organ transplantation became a reality in 1954 when Dr. Joseph Murray and Dr. John Merrill of Boston's Peter Bent Brigham Hospital transplanted a kidney from one identical twin to another. Previously fruitless, the genetic similarity of the donor and recipient would be the linchpin to the eventual success of the experimental procedure. Since then, Transplantation medicine has grown exponentially, and the range of organ transplantation procedures are myriad. The early days of organ transplantation were wrought with questions about the procedure's ethics and controversy about doctors' abilities to prolong human life. Kidney transplantation from a living donor was partially justified by the fact that kidneys are paired organs. The donor can live without the organ that was donated. The debate became even more controversial when Dr. Christian Bernard transplanted a viable heart into Louis Washonski. Although the procedure was considered a success, Washonski lived for 18 days. Shortly after, Bernard tried again with Philip Bleiberg, who lived 594 days. Uh, the conceptual controversy of organ transplantation, however, would fade away by the mid-1980s, when there was an overall acceptance of kidney and heart transplantation. The procedures would be seen as common. Organ transplantation is now seen as a highly effective procedure for remediating many types of chronic and terminal illnesses. In fact, transplants would become so ubiquitous that there has been a backlog of organ recipients for years. While there were approximately 17,000 kidney transplants in the U.S. last year, about 8,000 people were too sick or died waiting for a kidney. Another 121,000 people are on the recipient waiting list and an average time spent on the waiting list is about six years. Part of this supply-demand imbalance is the illegality of a kidney-organ market in the United States. The problem isn't low supply, but rather the overwhelming, unfilled demand. In this episode of SAMI Health Revolution, we will take a deep dive into the ethically complicated, yet under-discussed topic of transplantation medicine. Welcome to Sammy Health Revolution. My name is Mike Smith, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Podhast, who's also a member of the SAMI A team. I'm passionate about healthcare because accessing healthcare should be a human right. John, why are you passionate about healthcare?
1: Well, Mike, I'm passionate about healthcare because physical health is such an important aspect of my well being, and because I'm a huge fan of the great outdoors, hiking, running, all kinds of things like that, that I wouldn't be able to fully enjoy to the extent that I can now if I were not healthy, and because I just want everyone to be able to maximize their physical health so that they can maximize their joy in life. Thank you.
0: Today I'm joined by Bijan Ferengi, the founder of healthcare consumer advocacy company called Samyade. We've spoken to Bijan before and we're happy to have him back. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Previous visit, we had the opportunity to talk with you, Bijan, about the genesis of SAMIA. We'd like to welcome you back to discuss another fascinating component of your healthcare journey. Bijan, you've recently returned from Iran, where you received a kidney transplant. First of all, again, welcome. Um, How are you feeling? Doing great. It's it's amazing that um, the procedure was really
2: only three months ago, and the convalescence from something like this would take a normal person maybe up to a year, but... uh, Given the way I prepared for the procedure and how simple it was in hindsight, it's amazing. I actually was able to play squash and racquetball a couple weeks ago. I went to Hawaii, go with some sharks, which are all really incredible outcomes for somebody who's just recently had a particular surgery, especially a kidney transplant.
0: Well, let's start kind of at the very beginning. I mean, I understand you were diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease that affects the kidneys. Can you walk us through your diagnosis? What were also the steps that you initially took to address that diagnosis? So back in
2: 2011, I was lucky enough to go back to my HMO, which was Kaiser. And they had been looking at my creatinine levels for you know a number of years. Every time I'd go in there, they'd take my blood or so and they'd watch what it was. And they noticed that it was rising. Now, your creatinine is also a measure of the percentage of kidney function that you have. And so I'd come back from a trip and I'd been skiing. I'd been in a ski accident where I pulled a hamstring and they'd been looking at my creatinine and they said, "Um, it's rising. And as a result, the corresponding calculation came out to be about 40, 35 to 40% kidney function. And so they said, we have to find the source of this particular problem. You need to go get a biopsy. So I was sent to Chicago where I had some family members who are physicians do a biopsy and they came back with a diagnosis of a disease called IgA nephropathy. And the long and short of it is, is that they said that within five years, you're going to need a transplant. And so that began, you know, my journey into understanding what I could do to either affect the current status of my kidneys to kind of get them to work better or, you know, find a, a transplant solution.
1: So Bijan, uh, with your background, I know that you are familiar with a lot of innovations and things discoveries in medicine more so than the, the average person would be, but did you feel fully prepared and what specifically did you do to, to prepare for your diagnosis and your treatment?
2: Well, I don't think anybody is prepared for a significant diagnosis. as well. I think my cousins who delivered the news to me, it was almost like it was at a funeral, but I, it, I wasn't as shocked. I was like, okay, this is what I've got. You know, I've got to deal with this but I also was quickly able to put it in perspective because it wasn't a terminal cancer diagnosis. I wasn't coming down with, you know, some kind of a incurable disease that I couldn't
1: handle. This was a manageable situation. So I understand like the most common treatment for this disease would be peritoneal dialysis. So why did you actively choose to avoid that treatment and how did you manage to do that? I mean, would the average person even know to do what you did?
2: Probably not, because you know, we you know we as our company looks forward at innovative changes in medicine, you really have to be thinking about the cutting edge of any kind of diagnostic that might be out there or any kind of treatment that might be out there. And so there's actually two dialysis options. blood dialysis that you do when you go to a treatment every other day in a, in a dialysis center and peritoneal dialysis, which is a tube that goes into your abdomen that you use for overnight treatment of kidney disease. So you get dialyzed that way. Either one of them, though, are very debilitating in terms of limiting, you know, what kind of activities you can have. And, of course, physically, they are significant physical impacts to your life. A lot of people don't choose peritoneal dialysis because they don't like the way it looks because you've got a tube hanging out of your abdomen that you can never take out. And, of course, with transfusion or blood dialysis, Whenever you go to the center, you're linked to that center every other day for basically, you know, until you get a kidney
0: transplant or the rest of your life. So can you talk about what it was like being on the transplantation wait list? How would you describe that process? That was probably
2: the real, I mean, that's when the whole thing really hit home Mm -hmm. because it wasn't just me. When I was on the transplant list here in California, I was informed that I would be around number 96,000, 97,000 on the transplant list, and that it would take me probably seven years of waiting before I'd be eligible for a kidney in California. But that wasn't even the worst of it. The worst of it in that particular room that I was waiting in, which I was talking, I was being informed about the option of kidney transplant through my HMO Kaiser and UCSF. And in that room, there were 20 individuals. 20 people that had significant kidney disease that needed transplant. Out of those 20, only three of us were eligible. I was fortunate to be one of those three, but 17 people who would need kidney transplants would not even be eligible to get a transplant because they were either overweight, they were too old, they were too sick, they had other complications, then they were basically just written off. And so even the numbers that were shown to me, 96,000, 97,000, still paled into comparison mm-hmm. of the people that actually needed a kidney right. that would never even be eligible. Or if like these guys right. even had cancer or other complications, wow. they wouldn't be eligible. So I looked at the numbers in general. I mean, in general, in 2018, there were 468,000 people that were on dialysis. But of those 468,000 people, if that only represented maybe only 5% or 10% of the total population of people that needed a kidney, that means kidney needs were probably in the four or five million range and so which is insane that that many people need a kidney in the united states also of all the people that needed a kidney that cost the cost of doing 468 thousand people in the united states is 40 billion dollars there has to be a better solution than that because people are dying they're dying because they can't get a kidney they're dying because they, they can't wait for a kidney. They're dying because they're still on dialysis. And when you look at somebody who's on dialysis, and this was the main reason why I was told not to consider dialysis under any circumstances. The, the quality of life of somebody on dialysis is literally like somebody who's got one foot in the grave. Mm-hmm. Now, there are people that have survived on dialysis for a long time, mm-hmm. but it is, not, it is not a life. It is not a, a lifestyle that you would give to or wish on anybody. Is it better than dying? Yeah, it's better than dying, but it's not much better than dying Mm -hmm. because you're limited. The amount of treasure that is spent by the United States, by all of the Western countries on various forms of dialysis and chronic treatment management is insane. It's in the billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars compared to the amount of money they actually even spend on research. The amount of money spent on research in this area is only four or five hundred million dollars, but you're spending billions and billions and billions and billions on chronic treatments that have no significant, no beneficial endpoint. It's a complete nightmare of a situation. And I was face-to-face with it in that moment when I was told about transplant.
0: Well, that Um, definitely puts things in a great deal of perspective. So obviously, you started considering going abroad for a kidney transplant pretty shortly after that realization, I would think. Um, So can you talk a little bit about your thought process around that? Number one, how did you start thinking about Iran as a possible place to go? Any detail around that?
2: Yeah, so my first option was obviously stay here in the United States. And so if you're on the kidney transplant list, you're waiting for a cadaver donor or some miracle donor to show up and give you a kidney. Most people don't have that option. So what you try to get is you try to get a family member to be a kidney donor for you. In my case, it was my sister. She was compatible in terms of blood type. But after doing some investigation, our family has a history of kidney stones, and that was one of the criteria that eliminated her from being a potential kidney donor. So now without a family member as a potential donor, I had to look outside of the system. And so I, just like anybody else, especially because I'm aware of the entire global medical market, Mm -hmm. I was immediately aware of the fact that there is a significant black market for kidneys in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that revolves around kidneys that are being um, harvested in the Philippines and right. India. And as I investigated even more, I understood that the central portion of this was driven by organ management people in Israel. So as I was looking at the black market for kidneys, kind of thinking, okay, if this doesn't work out, what are my options? I also came across this, and I didn't even know that, even being a half Iranian national, my father was Iranian, my mother is was a Muslim American, I didn't realize that Iran had the only legal pay-for-play kidney system in the world. Now, that presented two problems. One, I didn't know anything about that program. I knew nothing about it. I wouldn't know how to even investigate it. And also, two, if I were to get that particular kidney, or even a black market kidney, would my insurance cover me for the medications that I would need to sustain my life with this particular kidney. And it turns out at least one part of the system is very, very, very liberal and very accepting. I understood from Kaiser that they don't care where you get a kidney. Mm-hmm. They don't care where you get a kidney. If you get a kidney, you have it, it's treating you, they'll help, they'll help you um, evaluate how successful the you know, to keep that kidney in your body and then whatever medications you might need kind of going forward. So when I came across this idea that you know, I could either go black market or I could go the legal route, I definitely decided to say that the legal route was probably the way for me. And I started to look more and more and more into the option of getting a kidney in Iran. And so it
1: turned out to be a absolute eye opener. So is there a wait list there too? Or is there such a big market? Is there such a big supply that when you make it legal, there's competition for it and all that? Was there, you didn't have to wait long once you it on that option? That's
2: a great question. So one of the great things about having a kidney, when I first discovered that Iran had a kidney program that was a pay-for-play program. wanted to look at the details. One of the great things about that particular program is that when you set a price for it, you set the price that manages supply and demand, right? Mm -hmm. And so originally when Iran first came up with this program, it was a free market. They would allow anybody to come in and get a kidney. And the price of a kidney was $100,000, $80,000, $120,000. And a lot of these rich... Foreign nationals, a lot of Arabs would come in from all over the world and come and get a kidney. What happened was that the local Iranians or Iranians that needed a kidney could not afford an eighty thousand, hundred thousand dollar kidney, and so they decided relatively early on to limit the market to only Iranian nationals. One side of the equation has to be: is it priced enough so that somebody's going to be compelled to be able to give a kidney? And on the second side of the equation, it has to be affordable enough that the normal average, you know, Iranian worker can actually afford to get that pay for that kidney because it is outside of their healthcare system. So it is a, a pay for play transaction. So when I got there, I arrived in October of 2018. And it was interesting because it was just at the point where there was a degree of hyperinflation within the economy because of the sanctions being put on Iran by the United States and, and a lot of the other Western countries. And so there was a price differential. And this price differential had in terms of dollars, had pushed the price of a kidney down to $1,800. Normally, the price in Iran is about, with normal you know exchange rates, about five or six thousand dollars. At five or six thousand dollars in the city of Tehran, which I'm a resident of, there is a typical balance, and there's never a waiting list. You can typically, as a matter of fact, there's usually more supply than there is demand. When I got there this particular time, we happened to have a problem. They told me that there was going to be probably an 18-month wait to get a Tehran, kidney. But they said that if you can go to an agency a little further away, there's a small city outside the city of Tehran called Cadaj, that they don't have a waiting list.
1: Okay, so Bijan, why do you think it's not this way in the US? Do you think we have just prematurely abandoned more liberal transplantation policies like Iran's? Or have we just are we just not aware of it? Or are people overly concerned about Human rights abuses, when those human rights abuses are likely to be even worse in a black market, right? That's correct. So
2: just like any any medical procedure, just like anything, if you have transparency within the system, it's going to be a safer procedure. My concerns were that if you go to a black market kidney, that you would get, you know, less than quality care because it is a black market. I want to go with somebody who absolutely knew what they're doing and that there would be no compromises in terms of the quality of care. The issue in Iran, it's not that Iran is better than the United States. It's Iran is better than almost the entire Western world. When Iran set up their kidney transplant program, it was in the early to mid-80s. At that time, it was under sanctions again by most of the Western world because of all the problems they had with the Iranian revolution. But because they had no access to dialysis technology, they decided that For practical purposes, the easiest, quickest, best way to support somebody who's got kidney disease is to give them a live kidney transplant. And it just makes sense to go ahead and compensate the donor so that the donor has some benefit to giving the kidney to the recipient. Now, of course, it helps everybody, obviously. It helps the recipient. It helps the government. It helps everybody's benefited by this particular person's transaction. But there has to be a driver to kind of support that. So in Iran, they came up with a compensation system and medical care that would benefit the donor. The reason why the United States didn't do it is that right at the time when this medical miracle of transplant was discovered, there was also a time when our political system became devoutly conservative. During the Reagan administration, when the moral majority became into power, one of the negatives of that particular um, administration was that as they were legislating for all kinds of other things, they also unfortunately stuck their hands into medicine and made the decision that you will not be able to get paid for a kidney donation in the United States and then ultimately in the entire Western world who followed the lead that was generated by the United States. Blindsided most of the medical community at the time. The medical community at the time completely expected that it would be just like the compensation you get for blood donation, just like the compensation you get for You know, any type of of organ donation that people give, blood or skin or transplants or anything that exists out there, bone marrow, stuff like that. So that has become the problem that we've had in the Western world. And then also, the other thing that happened is right about that time, you saw an explosion in need for dialysis. And the money that's made off of dialysis is just astronomical in the private sector. And, of course, there was this problem that under the Nixon administration, we'd given a mandate to people who needed kidneys to say that everybody was going to get dialysis if it was necessary. And this is before transplant was, became even a, uh, an option. And as a result, it's become this massive, massive, massive government boondoggle, which Iran was able to avoid by, by happenstance.
0: So let's switch gears a little bit. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the preparation that you made to receive the transplant in Iran. I would imagine that this cross-border element created a little bit of uh, complexity, let's call it. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I began to do
2: some research into you know, what it would take to get a kidney in Iran. I was you know, preparing myself as, a, as, as the options started ticking off. You know, The medical options weren't there. The transplant in the U.S. wasn't there. How was I going to make this last option work out? And um, the doctors here were very, very helpful. All of my my nephrologists on the U.S. side, I completely informed them of my decision to get this kidney in Iran. And they told me that your preparation is going to be X, Y, and Z. The most important thing was that, you know, prepare yourself for a surgery like you prepare yourself for an athletic event. You know, try to get your diet really, really set. Get your, you know, physical well-being, mentally. Prepare yourself for this. And so I was really, really prepared for you know, the procedure. What I wasn't prepared for was, and which was completely unknown to me, because I'd never been really in a hospital for an extended period of time, in particular, to be in a hospital in a third world country that happened to be at serious odds with the United States. And so that was kind of a a thing that I was a little bit concerned about. But fortunately, I had a family friend on the ground in Iran, that was doing some research because we said let's find one am i eligible mm-hmm. two who are the doctors that are going to be doing this procedure right and then you know what are we going to be able to plan out for my you know aftercare like how long am i going to have to be in country for and you know what kind of complications are we going to be able to plan for if we have a complication what am i to do do i medevac myself out or what happens right so again these were all unknown so going into the process. I felt relatively informed, but there was still a strong degree of trepidation.
0: So what did it feel like touching down in Tehran for the last time before you got the transplant? How did you feel? What were you thinking?
2: <laughs> Honestly, I was
0: thinking, what am I
2: getting myself mm-hmm. into? I, I, Even though I had this, you know, urgent need for a kidney, my creatinine had, you know, gone to a point or my kidney function had gotten to a point, you know, you need a kidney, you need a transplant when your kidney functions between 15% and 11%. If it gets below 11%, you got to be on dialysis. My kidney function at that moment had been close to 13%. Hmm. So I was right in the in the situation where I needed to be doing something. So I had, you know, as I was touching down into the city, now, I'd grown up there for a while. I, I Last time I was there was the Revolution in, in 79. I'd come back once or twice after that for my father's funeral and, and to visit, but not for any extended, any extended periods of stay. And so I was really concerned because I was like, well, you know, I don't know what it's going to be like to stay in this hospital. I didn't know if I'd enjoy the food. I didn't know what, what kind of sanitation they had sure. in terms of, you know, care and stuff like that. So I was I was actually almost trying to convince myself to fly back Mm -hmm. and delay this or try to figure something else Mm -hmm. out. But most of the people who are kind of my mom was there. My 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 cousins were there. People were there. they were helping me out. They're like, look, we these people or this system has been in place for a long time. They've had a lot of success. Don't doubt the process. If this had been the first time, absolutely. But these people have been down this path before. They know how to do a kidney in their sleep. So with that kind of a, you know reassurance, and plus the fact thinking that, look, if I was to delay this maybe another six or seven months, I could lose my donor. And also, more importantly, the political situation here could right. change dramatically. Right. There could be another revolution and I'd lose my opportunity completely. And that would be just a shame. So all those thoughts were percolating through my head. And so finally, I did some more blood tests. And then we checked into the hospital. And, you know, everything was set to happen. It was a fait accompli at that point. So.
1: Yeah, so Bijan, thankfully, I'm, I'm glad to hear that your recovery was very fast. I was actually kind of shocked at how quickly you returned home and came back to work and how lively you seemed after just having such a severe surgery. But anyway, can you tell us a little bit about your recovery process and what was it like getting your post-treatment care in the U.S.? You said you had like a scare moment at the airport or something like that. Would you be able to elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, so the procedure itself took about well, just a day. So I checked into the hospital on a Monday. By Tuesday morning, I did the procedure, and then I was in the hospital. I, had, I only had problems really basically that that night, and then after that, you know, typically after four or five days, well, actually within 24 hours, you're supposed to try to get up and walk around. I was walking around relatively quickly, which was fine. The more you active you are after a major surgery, the better you tend to recover. But from stitches and medication and stuff like that, they did blood tests on you literally every day post, post-surgery to make sure that you're not rejecting the kidney any sort of way. After 11 days, I was in the hospital. They were absolutely sure that my kidney function was fine. There wasn't any issues. I decided at that point I would do my aftercare in the United States. Now, I hadn't really planned that from the beginning. I was planning on convalescing in Iran for another couple more weeks, but I was feeling so good and didn't seem to have any complications at all that I decided to fly back sooner than I had thought. And so I was back in the U.S. literally two weeks after I had landed in Iran, which is amazing. I had actually prepared myself in the best possible way to receive this kidney so that there would be no complications at all. Even the best doctors were saying that, look, you're going to need a couple months before you drive, a couple months before you do this and that. But I was relatively active. And the more active you are, the quicker you are able to recover. Wow, that's and, awesome. Um, but I would tell you that the best reason for it was because I had a healthy kidney that was donated to me, and I was a healthy host. Both of those factors were the... And, of course, if you look back on it now and, and look at the procedure and how little downtime I had and how my productivity didn't really dip at all is really a testament to the success of this type of um, um, option for people who need a kidney. It is ridiculous to, to imagine somebody having to go on dialysis because they don't have the option for a transplant because it takes down a person, not only does it take a person down health-wise, productivity, they're no longer productive men of society. Right. Then, of course, the cost, which is so it's yeah. for so many reasons, it's the wrong way to go.
1: So how long has it been now exactly since your surgery? And how are you feeling now? How's your overall health? As of today, it's exactly three months
2: post-surgery, post what most people consider a major surgery. And like I said, I feel, you know, great. I, the only issue that I have is that at this moment is that when they took the stent out, they put a stent in during the procedure. And I was supposed to take that out here in the United States, uh, eight weeks post-surgery. And I had a slightly enlarged prostate. They were concerned about that. I did a PSA test. We're going to probably do some more tests to make sure there's no problems. But just like anything else, the proactive approach to your health care is absolutely the solution here. You cannot let, you know, the system or the government or anybody dictate what your best course of, of health care is. Mm-hmm. You take it into your hands, you know, you understand what their options are, and then you pursue the best path for you. If you offered an option for donors to receive some benefits, either from the recipient or from some other agency, it would be 10 times, 100 times, a million times more successful in reducing the cost of care and improving the health of the recipient. So so it's a solution that is long, long, long overdue. It's 40 years since the miracle of transplant has been introduced into society, and it's only now that people realize that that America could only be realized by a special few. I was very lucky to be half Iranian that I could go and get that particular procedure, but most people are not. And so we have to be able to be an agent for change and make sure that this is something that the Western world sees as a solution. And we stop letting people die needlessly and spending money needlessly on procedures that are not effective.
0: Thank you so much for uh, joining us today, Dijon. We hope you've enjoyed this production of SAMI Health Revolution hosted by SAMIAID. Our mission is to disrupt the healthcare establishment by empowering patients and people just like you. If you've enjoyed this episode, we're asking you to tell just two people you know about SAMIAID. Share this podcast with them, or better yet, ask them to visit us online at SAMIAID.com or call us at 1 844 SAMIAID. That's 1 844 S A M I A I D. You can also email us at infosamier.com or send us a message on Facebook. What's your health story? We'd love to hear it. Until next time, stay in great health.